to our podcast and to episode four of Jazz Backstory. My name is Monk Rowe, the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College. Our musician tales continue with stories regarding the learning process in jazz before it was considered a legitimate art form. I believe the art form issue is significant. Academia long ago deemed it acceptable and necessary to study Beethoven, Shakespeare, Picasso, and Martha Graham as pillars and innovators of our sacred art forms. Armstrong and Ellington had to wait for jazz to rise above the level of popular music in America, especially in the minds of the movers and shakers in higher education. A young aspiring musician in the first half of the 20th century learned the craft of jazz without the benefit or impediment of a classroom. Playing it by ear, was literally an accepted form of jazz pedagogy. Our first interview excerpt comes from a 1996 session with saxophonist Jerry Jerome. Jerry was first inspired by a vaudevillian drummer who was required to provide a wide variety of sound effects as well as keep time. After this initial inspiration, his parents and a particular 300-pound music teacher contributed to his eventual career in jazz. And so I'd go home and assemble all kinds of little things on the table, get two butter knives, and go through what he was doing. You know, about nine, ten years old. My mother thought, "Oh, he's strange, strange kid." <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then uh, you know we were very poor, and uh, lessons were about three dollars a lesson. My father delivered bread, and uh, when I expressed a strong interest in wanting to be a drummer, uh, he said. Uh, I'll see. And he had a customer that he delivered bread to, Professor Churchillo, an Italian, one of those 300 pound guys, you know. And, and then my father worked out a deal where he gave him bread and he gave me lessons and uh, on drums. The first day I came in there, I walk in with a pair of drumsticks that someone had given me for Christmas. And uh, I says, he started talking to me about this book, Solfeggio by Bona. I said, I, I want to be play drums. Okay. Says, I do the talking here. This is this is the way. And I went home and told my father what happened. You listen to Professor Churchill. And what he was trying to tell me is that uh, the old Italian method of teaching musician was to teach him solfeggio, the ear training. No mu no music, no musical instruments, no drums. You just look at the part. And you sing it, learn the intervals. I didn't realize, but it was an enormous help towards ear training. Mm -hmm. And after I got through with that, I went to drums. And I I went very quickly, and I played in his band and marched up and down these uh, little towns in Jersey on uh, on Columbus Day. And, uh -huh. you know, uh, different things. It was great. And nice uniform with the green epaulets and, you know, Italian style. And I loved it. At home, I'd practice, you know. My mother said, I wish you'd find something nice like a violin. It says, drums, bang, bang, bang. Oh. 
I was in, then in the garage, you know. <laughs> so I said, all right, violin didn't, didn't interest me at all, Mark. That sounded very, you know, not, mm -hmm. not my stuff. And I'm left-handed, you know. It's, so one day I saw an ad in my uncle's uh, grocery store, and it showed a guy with two beautiful chicks on his arms looking up at him adoringly. And the caption said, if you want to be the life of the party, play a C melody con saxophone. <laughs> I said, that's what I want to do, be a saxophone player. Um, it, it's interesting that they even said C melody. Oh yeah, that was, that, was, that was it. You know, I don't think the tenor and alto were, well, they weren't published. They were trying to push a new thing because the idea of a C melody saxophone, no transposition. Right. You read it all, and it showed a guy, you know, guys playing over the piano, you know. I said, that's oh, something, yeah. you know, yeah, just reading the piano cover. Uh -huh. So I said, uh, that's it. So I got this beautiful nickel-plated concert melody sax with little green buttons and little red things here like that. <laughs> and uh, came with a little book that said the black means push it down, the white means leave it open. I said, hey, there's only t 10 or 12 of those. That's Look for me, so I push it down. I, I learn how to play. And I, you know, uh, I actually didn't get a teacher yet at that time because I felt that uh, mm -hmm. that was enough. Then I got a teacher and started brush brushing up on it. And coming from a small town like Plainfield, New Jersey, I uh, literally was one of the few saxophone players in town. And when the good one left to get a job in New York, they called me, and I was was not ready at all. You know, I had no idea about these things. I was a terrible reader; couldn't couldn't read beans. But I had an ear that was ear. that was unbelievable, and I can recall, uh, you know, guys would the piano player would go to the to, the, to uh, Woolworths on Saturday and pick up the latest tune that was published. It would be like five foot two eyes of blue. You know, mm -hmm. this is in the twenties, about nineteen twenty five, twenty six. You know. And uh, it was incredible, you know, I'd just get on a job and I wouldn't, you know, I'd listen to him and I'd play, you know, around him, you know, just jazzing, which was the kind of the style then. Everybody was at that, 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 everybody was peppy, you know, mm -hmm. jazzy. And uh, I played uh, long enough to uh, earn some money and, you know, help my father out. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I, in a sense, I paid back the saxophone right. in a short period of time. Jerry Jerome eventually played a role in the success of both the Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman orchestras. After the big band era, he fashioned a successful career as a producer of commercial music and jingles, notably hiring jazz singer Joe Williams to sing the praises of a then-popular beer. If I recall it when something like, Carlsberg Light, it's all right, give a cheer for one good beer. Joe Williams sang it way better. You may recall from episode three how the young drummer Eddie Locke was dramatically schooled on the bandstand by Roy Eldridge. Finding a mentor or a more experienced musician like Roy Eldridge to emulate was a critical part of the jazz learning curve. In some cases, the age difference was minimal, but a few years of on-the-gig experience was significant and valuable 
in these pre-jazz education decades. Dr. Billy Taylor, born in 1921, was a highly respected pianist, composer, educator, and jazz spokesperson. In his formative years, he found veteran musicians to be an invaluable source of knowledge and inspiration. Here's Dr. Taylor speaking in 1995. Well, for me, in the generation that I came up in, uh, the uh, relationship between the older, more experienced musicians and the younger musicians was a good one. I mean, they were very helpful. They were very, uh, uh, throughout my early days, there was always some uh, older, wiser musician that I could go to and say, well, how do you do this? Or mm -hmm. what about so-and-so? Or what happens if? And uh, get an answer. And uh, uh, I didn't represent a threat to them. And, mm -hmm. you know, unlike the uh, young man with the horn syndrome that people write about a lot, uh, they had no, they were so secure in what they did. I was a kid. They said, hey, yeah, come on, kid, do, do whatever, you know, no problem. You know, there wasn't this, Shoot your best shot. You know? Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't this gunslinger mentality. No, no, not at all. No. Even, even when I was older, and I mean, I was as rash and brash as uh, any other guy just coming out of college, man. I mean, I thought I was pretty mean, you know, so I'm, I'm ready to, you know, shoot down anybody that came along. I mean, I got spanked and, and put, in, put in my place, just like everybody else. Oh, yeah, you think you can do that? Try this. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and a little bit of that's healthy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you gotta, you because gotta... because it, it, was, it went hand in hand with encouragement. I mean, it uh -huh. wasn't uh, put down, you'll never make it, or you don't have uh -huh. any talent. It was, it was yeah, you, you, you know, you can do that, but, you know, you can't do this. Uh -huh. <laughs> Some 50 years later, a young trumpeter named Derek Gardner had the good fortune to be a member of the Count Basie Orchestra under the direction of Frank Foster. With plenty of time to fill on the band bus, the idea of big band arranging took hold. Frank Foster, affectionately referred to as Foss, was a master of this craft, and Derek wisely took the walk forward between the bus seats to tap into the resource. He shared that moment in our 2013 interview. I was, uh, when I first joined the band in 1991, um, it was with, uh, Frank Foster was uh, directing the band. And he would, uh, in between cities on the bus, he'd be sitting at the front of the bus in his seat with a big pad of manuscript paper uh, for, you know, big, uh, uh, try out for a, a big band instrumentation and a black felt-tip pen and with no piano or anything, you know. And um, and he was doing saxophones. Dee-da-dee-da-dee-da. Trumpets. Dee-da-dee-da. Trombone. Dee-da-dee-da-da. Dee. Dee-da-dee-da. Dee-da-dee-da-da. And I was looking at him doing it, and I said, wow, that's, that's pretty slick, man. I think, I wonder if I could do that, you know. I got some ideas about arranging, about a tune I want to arrange, you know. And so uh, I bought me a big pad of score paper, you know, the manuscript paper, and got my pencil. I didn't get the pen, you know. I said, I wrote about 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 eight to ten measures or something, you know. And I figured, I said, man, I've got one of the greatest arrangers in the history of this music at arm's length distance to me. I've, I've, I've got to, you know, learn something from him. 
So after I wrote out my few little measures, I went to the went to the front of the bus spot a couple weeks later, and um, I said, "Hey, false, would you uh, would you kindly take a look at, at this and see if I'm on the right path here?" You know, and he said, "Okay." He took it and looked at it, and he was looking at it. And said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while he's going, why he's, he's like kind of going, mm-hmm, he took his cap from his black pen, mm-hmm. grabbed his red pen, took the cap off, and said, okay, that's all wrong, and this is, should be B natural instead of B flat. You know, why don't you put a G sharp there? That should be G sharp. Make that a G natural. This is, you know, you caught the flat five here, but why you got flat five here when you got it said sharp five? No, don't do that. That's my class report. And this just kind of did the Zorro thing all over. And he said, okay, well, check that out. And I looked at it, and he basically just bled all over my page. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went back to the back of the bus where my seat was, tail between my legs, and I said, Phew. So we got to the, got to the hotel. Um, fortunately, the hotel had a piano. And I played through all the corrections that he made, you know. I said, okay, I see, oh, wow, boy, I was sure was off in my thinking here, wow. And so the next thing I did was I bought me a little keyboard, you know, and um, about uh, about a month later, um, I wrote about, wrote out about, you know, 10 or 12 messages or something, you know, and uh, we're on the bus and I put the Foss, hey, Foss, you take a look at this, and he said, okay. So, put the black cap on the red pen, and said, "All right, it's okay." And so, yeah, this, uh, this, these formats here, not that that's wrong. Shouldn't like that we do it like this. And each time, so he gave it back to me and said, "I said okay." So, in each time I went back to him, I had less blood on my page, you know. Derek is now a respected arranger and band leader in his own right, and cites Frank Foster as instrumental to his success. It's jazz vocabulary time. First, a quick review. Starting with episode one, we have taken note of the riff, the lick, vocalise, blue notes, and the gig. We could have a jazz quiz. Eh, there's no quizzing in jazz, at least on this show. Today, we'll spotlight a pair of connected terms both have been part of jazz from the very first downbeat. First up, the jam session. Pretty much what it sounds like. Simply put, a session where players voluntarily get together, call tunes, and improvise on them. Jam is slang for improvising, much like the terms take a ride, get off, and fake it. Jam sessions provide a platform for young players to test their skill level against their peers. Jam sessions have also jump-started innovations in jazz styles, most notably bebop, practically born in these informal settings. Jam sessions are typically friendly and inviting, but when reputations are on the line, we enter the arena of the cutting contest, the extreme jam. Jazz lore provides us with numerous examples of the new cat in town who either makes or breaks their reputation in intense battling with potential rivals. 
Coming out on top at a cutting contest could actually lead to employment and record deals, so the stakes were not imaginary. The cutting contest, which seemed to have thrived in noisy, smoke-filled bars, is rather a relic now, while the jam session remains a useful tool for aspiring players. As a child, Holly Hoffman learned jazz standards on the flutophone, accompanied by her guitar-playing father. She is now one of the finest jazz flute players in the business. Holly experienced a jazz education trial by fire when her mentor, Slide Hampton, inserted her in what he hoped would be a jam session. That quickly morphed into that other extreme thing. From 1998, here's Holly Hoffman. Get recruited. Was this a concert situation? This was a, this was a very big concert situation. This was many, many people in the audience. So it'd be a toss-up. The cutting session was a nightmare of its on its own. Well, well, if you don't mind, tell me about that, because I've often wondered what that would be. I've never been in, I think, a real cutting session like that. Was it the tunes they called? It the, was the tunes the, and the tempos. The tunes and the tempos. It was, uh, it was a very famous group in New York City um, who were quite appalled that Slide brought this little flute player in to sit in with them. And they just decided that they were going to see if I could play. Thank God my dad had given me a list of cutting session tunes, mm-hmm. like Cherokee and, you know, the, the ones that they really, you know, do it to you on. Um, and they called Cherokee, and it was, you know, it's, it's one, one, one. <laughs> it's, it's so fast that they can't play it. But it doesn't uh-huh. matter because that's, you know, they want to see if you spot. can play it. Yeah. Right. And then um, the saxophone player, who shall remain nameless, came over and said, Well, honey, do you think you can play Just Friends? And I said, Yes, I can. He said, Okay, B major. One, two, one, two, Get three, four. Out. Yes. He did that? Yeah. And Slide went over and said, Guys, you know, don't do this because it's making you look bad. And. Um, Slide just said, you'll stand, I wanted to get off the stage, and he said, you'll stand there and you'll play, because this is the tradition. This is what's been done. This is what Diz did to Miles. This is what, this is what has been done to people over the years, as long as jazz has been an art form. Uh So he said, just go with it and do it and do the best you can. And I did okay. And, you know, Just Friends in B Major is a real (laughs) trip. But, uh, you know. Thank God I was playing by ear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank oh. God you had started when you were five with your father yeah. doing that. When I interviewed Holly Hoffman in San Diego, she seemed to have recovered from the ordeal in fine shape, as evidenced by her collaborations with Ray Brown, Frank Wess, Mike Wolford, and numerous others. Let's turn to saxophonist Phil Woods for a wrap-up to this set. I can tell you from experience that veteran musicians like to school their students in experiences that no longer exist, perhaps requiring them to hand copy music despite sophisticated composition software, or insisting that they read liner notes 
from the back of LP jackets. Even though the days of touring big bands is long past, Phil Woods proposed a recreation of the day-to-day -day grind of life on the road. His message to students, that there is a good deal more to learn about the jazz life than just the music, remains relevant. There's a couple of statements I've read uh, that were kind of humorous from you yourself about part of jazz education should be getting on a bus, uh, riding around. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, get, get fitted out with, uh, get some ill-fitting uniforms, you know, uh -huh. very uncomfortable. You know, the, the lightweight in the winter, the heavy weight in the summer. <laughs> a bus whose windows don't open, no air conditioning, no Walkmans allowed. Oh. Uh, everybody's got a double, you know, you got all the saxophones, you got to have at least four or five cases to carry, and a big, thick book of about 400 charts. Put everybody on the bus and just drive around in circles on the campus for about 12, 15 hours, you know. <laughs> Then get off the bus, everybody put on these terrible uniforms, you know, call out a set, and the book is never in order. Mm -hmm. It's like Gene Quill style, you know, one, two, 47, 93, 207, <laughs> five. <laughs> call out the set real quick. Seven, you know, everybody gets their, all their instruments out, you know. Okay, put the instruments back, put the music back, and we put your book in order, hang up your suit, get back on the bus, drive around for another 12, 15 hours, you know. Do it once again, mm -hmm. and I think you might cut cut the wheat from the shaft. You know, <laughs> kids now, who wants now? to do this? I mean, it's an exaggeration, but yeah. all, all points yes, because there are no more big bands where you could even right. do this conceivably. Right. But I mean, that's the way it used to be. I don't yeah. think it has to be that way. But nevertheless, the hardest part of the music business is the traveling, whether yeah. it's a bus or a plane or just just the, the idea of existing. You know. I mean, it yeah. ain't about playing. The playing is easy. It's all the nonsense you go through to, to bring your horn up to the bandstand. That, mm -hmm. that's, that's the only, that's the altar. That's the safe place. I love that phrase. The bandstand as an altar. The safe place. In fact, my conversation with Mr. Woods occurred on a bandstand from which he frequently performed. The stage at the Deerhead Inn, an historic jazz club in the Poconos. Thanks for tuning in to Jazz Backstory, Episode 4. In our next session, we'll listen to jazz artists speak about the intriguing practice we call jamming, faking, taking a ride, the get-off, the improvisation. I hope you'll tune in. See you on the flip side.